Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. We're going to continue week three of our special little project, The Science of Happiness. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. And if, in fact, this is the first time you've discovered this series, I do hope you'll find the other two episodes, be they on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or I would particularly encourage you to go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Andrew Curtis Show, simply because under each of these episodes that I post, I also include a lot of the links to the articles, the studies, the videos that are discussed in the overall course content that I'm drawing from here. This is from the Science of Happiness course that is put on by the University of California, Berkeley. So that's there as a resource to you. I just wanted to share this with you. It's a free course. I'm not ripping anybody off by doing this, but I certainly am happy to give full acknowledgement and credit to the UC Berkeley team for putting this amazing course together. That is your resource to check out as well. So again, facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis show. This week, we are talking about compassion and kindness. And I had a couple of experiences earlier on this week that helped to underlie how important this was. In fact, it started off on Christmas night. So I got home after a day of family fun and frivolity, and discovered that our internet was down. Okay, but inconvenient. So the next day, Boxing Day, I get in touch with Spark, who are our internet provider here, just to let them know what's going on. I didn't expect to be able to phone anyone. This was via their um, live chat thing. You know, the box pops up and you go blah, blah, blah. So relatively quickly, somebody jumped on in response to my question about an outage and did what they could after a little backwards and forwards discovered that wow it actually looks like they're going to have to send somebody out to take a look at this that person comes out the next day blew my mind did not expect that to happen and says actually we're going to have to replace the internet cable the fiber itself comes back the very next day completes that for me and is gone so from christmas night i had internet back on the 27th that blew my mind what blew my mind more than that, though, as I looked back over the conversations that I'd had with these two people, one of them just over chat, another one face to face, was how defensive they were. And I don't mean it in a, they weren't blaming me for anything, but you could just tell, or at least I could just tell, that these are people who get their butts kicked by people all day long. I mean, when our internet's out, right, we need it back right now. We need everything back right now. And in my first interactions with the girl who was on the other side of the uh, live chat, she was so apologetic, so sorry that she couldn't do anything more. And I was surprised because, sure, it was inconvenient, but I hadn't really directed anything at her. And in fact, I said to her at the time, I said, I don't know what you're apologizing for. You didn't do anything. You, you can't do anything about it. Thank you for organizing somebody. And I didn't say it for anything more than not wanting her to feel undue pressure, but she was so appreciative of that. And it kind of surprised me in that moment. And then the guy who came out to fix the internet cable as well, immediately, oh, look, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to come back tomorrow because blah, blah, blah. And they literally had to cut up the concrete to, to sort this thing out, right? But again, immediately so defensive. And I'm, look, I'm going to have to come back and I'm really, really sorry and this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, people must just give you guys both barrels all the time, all the time. And what are they going to do about it? You know, internet help desk people. What are you going to do about it? You don't have the technical skills to sort things out. But it got me thinking about our culture overall and how when it comes to how we try and get things done, I don't believe 
that in our culture, we use compassion and kindness very often. Uh, my interaction showed me that we use anger, we use fear, we use rejection to get things done. We think that the best thing you can do to get something done is to put the boot into somebody. And I would say that we've had experiences where that might be true in the short term. But in my professional development, my own study as well, working as I do in training and coaching people, I have found that there is a short-term value to that. But there is a long-term cost. And that is a place where people don't have trust. People are not giving their best. People are just doing what they can to keep their heads down and never motivated to go the extra mile. So when I looked at this topic of compassion and kindness, I want you to think about this as well in terms of how you think we deal with the challenges that come our way. Do we respond with compassion and kindness? This is not about giving people free passes for things, but do we demonstrate understanding towards one another? And then later on as well, we're going to talk a bit about compassion towards ourselves too. And that's something that I also think is quite heavily lacking and something that I took a lot from throughout this particular segment of the course. So without further ado, the start of this particular uh, topic was directed from Emiliana Simon Thomas. And you'll know that name if you've listened to a few episodes before now. She is the science director of the Greater Good Science Center and one of the main presenters for this particular course. And she talks about pro-social behaviors. And immediately, I think of that in comparison to that experience that I'd had earlier on, that I could tell these were people who did not experience a lot of pro-social behaviors because they weren't encouraged to engage with people, right? So anyway, pro-social behaviors uh, and emotions are directed at improving the well-being of others. And again, this idea of being others-centric comes through very heavily in the science of happiness. So this week we're looking at two of them. So one of them being kindness and one of the major motivators for kindness, which is compassion. Now, the reason we're studying this, just to make it clear, is that there is evidence to suggest that kindness makes us happier. It literally activates the reward circuitry in the brain and it strengthens our social connections. So we're happier when we spend money on others versus on ourselves, for example, and people who volunteer who are involved in some form of charitable activity are more satisfied with their lives and in better health. So already we can see a benefit to this particular approach. And you can imagine, even for yourself, if you're in a career where you feel like you need to be writing people all day to get stuff done, and you're also struggling with a lack of happiness or well-being, perhaps it could be that we've got this belief in our society that compassion and kindness aren't required within our work days, even as we look to try and get other things done within our world as well. Anyway. Anyway, always keen to hear your thoughts, by the way. If anything here resonates to your story, I'd love to hear it. You can send an email through to me at the Andrew Curtis Show, the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. So let's get into a bit of a definition here. It's pretty important when you're having these discussions that you need to have a, a common frame of reference. And so when we're talking about what is compassion, Dacca Keltner, who is uh, one of the other senior presenters during this course and also a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, talks about kindness and saying how it might be motivated by empathy or gratitude, even desire for social status, 
but it might also be motivated by compassion. And that's our goal here. Now, compassion is, is defined in this course is the feeling of witnessing somebody's suffering and then wanting to help them. So some form of action being prompted. So that definition is to help distinguish compassion from empathy and also just from mimicry. Um, also, during this part of the course, they try and distinguish between compassion and pity, which can also include a belief that the person suffering is inferior to us. Something that'll come up later on is this idea of common humanity and how much that is critical to our subjective well-being. So acting on compassion leads to altruism. So helping others, even if it involves sacrifice. But compassion isn't always acted upon and altruism can be motivated by other things. So um, there is a little graphic as well, which I will try and include for you uh, in the course material as well. But it basically says that starting with empathy within the field of compassion, it can lead to distress and annoyance because sometimes we see something that, yes, we feel poorly about, but we feel so overwhelmed we don't do anything. Or it can lead to concern which then also leads to judgments about either acting in that person's best interests or doing nothing. Because sometimes that's where our empathy can lead us as well. Oh, we feel bad, but actually they probably did this to themselves, right? Who hasn't been there? I know I have. So the thing is too, this idea of the virtue of compassion is pretty well supported through various religious traditions around the world as well. A lot of theorists didn't even believe that we evolved to be compassionate when it came to a biological instinct though Darwin talked about um, the thought that sympathy or compassion was our strongest instinct. Um, he reasoned that compassionate groups of people would cooperate better and raise more children. And if you're looking at life from a purely biological point of view, propagation of the species, that would make some sense, right? Uh, also, things like altruism evolved for the same reasons, if you're looking at it purely from a naturalistic point of view. And uh, it's called reciprocal altruism, when we expect the people that we help to help us again in the future. So that's a bit of a foundation on a biological level. Of course, if you have a more spiritual outlook, you're likely to see that this idea of helping one another is transcendent. It's more than purely biological. It is something that is the responsibility of all human beings. Anyway, the next part of um, the course material for this week starts to talk about the compassionate instinct. And this is where I love to see how the body how we're physically put together supports these things that we kind of know intuitively. The instincts that we have, the, the sense of ought that we have. So Dacher Keltner picks up this part of the puzzle as well and says that the same region of the brain activates when we imagine harm being done to others as when mothers look at their babies, suggesting that compassion might have its roots in our care for our offspring. Kind of a beautiful thought, right? The same brain regions also associated with positive emotions. Uh, and there's a bunch of um, calming effects too to having a compassionate experience. It calms our autonomic nervous system. It slows our heart rate and can actually kick off a virtuous cycle because it stimulates oxytocin. And we talked about that last week as well. And that encourages more compassionate behavior. And we also looked at last time around, not last week, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the vagus nerve and how this is a nerve cluster that goes through our whole body and strong vagal tone, they talked about it, a well-developed vagus network also is associated with better health. 
So when we actually reach out and help other people, we activate the brain's reward and pleasure centers. That's a long way of saying that it's better to give than to receive. Heard that somewhere? So we are hardwired too to express this compassion through facial expression and touch. And that, by the way, is a whole other field of study, which is amazing. How that even within blind children, when they are looking to an ex express a particular emotion, they will use the same facial features that those who are fully sighted use. It speaks to how, that's true by the way, uh, that we are hard-coded to express not just through word, but also just through our expressions. When we feel compassion, we display things like a concerned gaze and oblique eyebrows. So you think about eyebrows on an angle, right? Uh, Keltner's research also shows that a short touch on the arm from a stranger who you can't even see can convey compassion quite accurately. And one of the things we looked at in previous weeks too was how touch is so central to an experience of happiness and care and that we are living in a, a touch-deprived society. So compared to negative emotions, positive emotions seem to be less genetic and more influenced by our environment. So parents can try to raise compassionate children by helping them develop a secure attachment style, uh, parenting with reasoning rather than power, and also modeling compassion themselves. And those are some things that we also discussed in our previous episode. So this all sounds lovely, right? So what's good about compassion? Because again, one of the reasons I wanted to do this series was that I wanted to move beyond this idea of happiness being a nice to have, but starting to see it as more as symptomatic of when we are living in line with those things that are best, not only for us, but best for others. So Emiliana Simon Thomas starts this part of the discussion by identifying that compassion has three stages. And it begins with empathy. So after experiencing the emotions of others or understanding their perspective, we start to have other feelings as well. We might feel caring, we might feel distressed, we might even feel annoyed. So in the third stage, we'll form judgments about ourselves or the sufferers and the environment that help us decide how we're going to act next. Again, that idea that perhaps they did this to themselves or, well, is there anything I can really do? And those sorts of ideas, right? On a positive side, though, compassion does make us happier by many different pathways because it creates empathy, improving our social connections and making us feel more similar to others particularly to vulnerable people. At this point too, I just want to point to a book that's not covered in the course material, but I particularly enjoyed it. It is written by Taker Keltner and it's called The Power Paradox. I highly encourage you to track that down because it talks about the relationship between the empathy we have for one another and the power, the sense of personal power that we are feeling at any given moment. And the idea conveyed is that actually it seems to be an inverse relationship. And in other words, the more powerful we are feeling in ourselves over a particular moment in time, the less empathy we tend to demonstrate. So, for example, if you are doing very well for yourself financially or, say, through your health and well-being or your family situation is a good one, and you look at somebody who is at the opposite side of that spectrum, if you are feeling strong and powerful in that particular part of your life, the irony is you're likely to be less empathetic to those who are not doing so well. You're likely to look at your situation and say, well, they should just make better choices and those sorts of things. And certainly there's some truth to that. 
But I would encourage you to check out that book before I go too far down that rabbit hole because it does help us understand how within our cultures we actually gain power through our displays of empathy and, and caring for one another and telling stories of our own struggles and challenges. And then we lose power because we stop to do those same things that we did at the very beginning. All right. So let's have a look at where I was up to before I got completely inspired on other things. Um, things like compassion also teach us to manage distress. So we learn to sit with other people's pain and channel it in a positive direction towards caregiving. And I think that is a key point as well in terms of our overall emotional intelligence. I've seen a lot of people who struggle in moments of distress of others and their immediate response is, hey, it's not so bad. Well, look, dwelling on it won't help and try and truncate that moment. And I actually think as I have grown and learned more about this, that it actually creates more harm than good, not just in that moment, but overall creating the sense that negative emotions are to be avoided uh, or truncated somehow or they're bad or wrong or something like that. So this ability to sit with sit with people in those kind of situations is invaluable. Science has also shown that compassionate people see themselves as more capable and self-sufficient. Those are also characteristics that are associated with happiness and resilience. And again, I want you to think about that because that to me sounds a little bit counterintuitive. People who are compassionate and caring are also more resilient. I think for myself, I can only speak for my own journey, that when I used to look at other people's suffering, I would often be overwhelmed because my immediate thought was, how do I help? What do I do? And if I couldn't think of anything to do, I would feel so distressed that I'd be like, that's it. I don't want to have anything to do with the situation. By honoring the experience that people are having around us, even if it's in a moment of distress or discomfort, and just being able to sit there. What I love about these studies is they're starting to show that that has benefit, not just for you, but for the other people. And that that response is a completely valid response. You don't need to do anything, say anything, but sometimes just being there, the power of that social connection that we have creates greater well-being for everybody. Now, in the body, I suggested, uh, I um, suggested, I uh, spoke to this a little bit earlier on, but compassion has a number of uh, physiological benefits. So it activates the empathetic and caregiving circuitry of the brain, and it makes us happier by increasing our vagal nerve activity. And that was what I discussed a little earlier on and boosts the reward and pleasure response we get from helping other people. It also has lasting stress reduction effects, lowers, lowers our stress response and uh, amygdala activity in the brain um, is also lowered when we're confronted with challenging situations. Isn't that amazing? By being compassionate to one another. So to look into this a little bit further, um, Emiliana Simon Thomas starts to speak to very briefly as well how we measure compassion in the body. And there's two studies out from um, um, Purdue and UC Berkeley investigating the links between the vagus nerve and compassion. And uh, in the Berkeley study, they got people to watch compassion inducing videos and it did indeed increase vagal tone, the activity within their vagus nerve cluster. Uh, in the Purdue study, kids with more vagus nerve activity uh, or warm authoritative parents showed higher focused concentration a year later and more sympathy as rated by their parents three to four years later. So again, isn't that incredible? That sense of compassion creating an environment where kids are able to concentrate better. And if you have any experience with school teachers, they will back this up because you can tell the kids who are struggling at home because they can't concentrate. 
the ones who are disruptive, right? And how often do we look at that and think it's just the child making bad choices and they're being ill-disciplined? It's an easy thing to assume if you come from a strong and supportive home environment. So again, having this idea of common humanity and understanding the effects that a lack of compassion can have on a child, can have on our own development, I think is it's a key way of us just improving the well-being of all those around us, right? Into the next part. And we start to talk about now, now that we've at least established some of the virtues of kind, kindness and compassion, that there is a kindness-happiness loop. So many studies, uh, again, Dacia Keltner comes in at this point, have linked kindness and um, kindness to happiness, to health, and a decrease in negative emotions. So kindness makes us less lonely and less depressed. Again, fascinating because often when you are trapped in a cycle of negative emotion, one of the uh, symptoms of it can be an unceasing focus on self. And yet kindness, by definition, is directed outward more often than not, right? A, a kind act that I can do for somebody else. So those who do so feel less isolated, less depressed. Kindness also strengthens our immune system. It reduces aches and pains. It improves our cardiovascular profile. It boosts energy and strength in elderly people. In fact, here is a uh, good motivation to go and volunteer immediately. People who volunteer live longer. And elderly people who care for others are less likely to die over a certain period of time. And as we've discovered as well, it's not just about living longer, but a better quality of life too. As we've looked at some of these things earlier on, we've already started to see, right, that caring for other people and living a life of, of happiness and compassion means we not only live longer, but we have a better quality of life as we do it. So now we look to an outside study for the first time in this particular section by Delia Furman, F-U-H-R-M-A-N-N, and talking about how being kind makes kids happy. So a particular study introduced toddlers to a monkey pet and it was just a little puppet kind of toy, and then distributed treats in a few different ways. So observers rated the toddlers as happier when giving away one of their treats to the monkey than giving away a treat uh, the experimenter found, or even getting a treat. So it suggests that kindness is just innately pleasurable, although it's possible that young children might have already taught to be kind too. So disclaimers, disclaimers. But this idea that kindness is intuitive to our well-being um, speaks to my overall goals with this as well, right? That kindness is a transcendent value. Kindness is something that we are made to do to one another. It's not just an option. It's something that will create a better life for everybody. So on to the next part. Research suggests that the way to raise kind children is not necessarily to reward them for kindness because that can make them see themselves as doing kind acts for a reward. So instead, there's this idea that parents should help kids cultivate an internal motivation to be kind. Perhaps kindness is its own reward. Well, you know, that sense of happiness that we feel, again, I'm open to other people's perspectives on this too, but to get people to pay attention in that moment and say, hey, when you gave that thing away, how did you feel? Did you feel good? Yeah. You remember that time when you were crying and complaining about something that you wanted that you didn't get? How did you feel? Oh, not so good. Interesting, right? So that sense that our experience of life, a positive experience of life, can be a sufficient reward, I think is a really good one. Now we move on to Sonia Lubomirsky, 
who is a name as well that might be familiar to you from a few earlier uh, discussions. She talks about um, happiness for a lifetime. And overall, she's looking at the best way to boost our happiness with kindness. The finding that she had was to pack one day with five acts of kindness. That was in her research. So people who spread out five kind acts across a week didn't get happier, probably because their kindness was a little less salient. So kindness changes the way that we see ourselves and we become pillars of generosity. We become interconnected with those around us. And I think when we condense those kind acts in one day, it becomes more evident. We start giving people the benefit of the doubt when we're being kind. And we feel less distressed when we see suffering because we're doing our little part to help. And that idea right there too, at the risk of getting ahead of myself, but I think that's quite powerful too. And I know I struggle with this. Like I often want to do everything at once. And if I can't fix the whole thing, then I I don't like just to do a little bit. But don't despise the days of small beginnings, right? Doing those little things. If we all just did those extra little things, I think we're all looking for the big things that we can do. It would make much more of a difference. So this is a reminder to me, even as I read this. Kindness also helps us make more friends and become the recipient of others' kindnesses. Isn't that powerful? You know, we talked about social connection in the other week as well and how that's central to it. You see how this creates a bit of a virtuous loop as well. Because we are kind, we have more friends. We have Because we have more friends, we're better connected. And because of this, we have a network of people for whom not only can we do kind things, but we can receive kind things from. So Alex Dixon looked into some of this, and um, particularly the idea that kindness makes you happy and that happiness makes you kind. So one particular study showed that doing an act of kindness gives as much of a happiness boost as doing something new every day. Because we know novelty is exciting, right? Even remembering a time that we spent money on someone else can boost your happiness. And the happier we are when we're reminiscing, the more likely we'll choose to spend money on others again when giving the option. So a conscious daily action of doing kind acts for other people. Dacca Keltner steps back in at this point and starts to look at the evolutionary roots of kindness, saying besides the fact that kindness propels us to care for offspring is often reciprocated. Evolution also selected for kindness... um, No, sorry, I'm going to make sure I read this part right. Evolution also selected for kindness because it makes us attractive to potential mates. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Who wants to marry a jerk? Is the moral of that story. One survey of 10,000 people from 37 countries found that good character and kindness was the most important trait that attracted people to long-term partners. Interesting, right? That's probably a good discussion to have at some point as well in terms of what people are looking for in relationships these days as well. Because I think sometimes that can be challenged and changed. Um, and in fact, even in my own life as well, man, I'll be honest, like earlier on, you're looking for certain things that maybe a little more superficial Um, and you start to discover that actually it's much more rewarding to be around somebody who is a good character and kind than somebody who might be attractive but have lacking character right so further evidence um, that kindness is innate can be found in our instinctual relationships sorry and instinctual reactions our instinctual reactions there you go third time's a charm so when you force people to decide in 10 seconds or less how much to give they give more than when they have extra time to think about it. Suggesting that we've actually got generous intuitions. So I'm actually thinking of contexts where I've seen that used before. If you literally just give people 10 seconds and go, okay, how much are you going to give? Bam. Um, we talk ourselves out of being kind. 
more often than not. I think it's too because in the moment we're inspired by the need of somebody else and the longer we have to think about it, the more we can be consumed with our own situations. So even 18-month-old children who are relatively unburdened by the social pressures we'd say we identified show strong tendencies to help other people. Isn't that cool? Now, for those of you who are wondering how far this actually goes, Scott Barry Kaufman also talked about how kindness is physically attractive. And there are various studies that have shown that we find people more physically attractive if we see them as likable, familiar, respected, or intelligent. And our evaluations of people's attractiveness can change as we get to know them better as well. So if you're wondering ways to how to improve yourself, yeah, sure, you could go to the gym or you could just be nice to people. Hey, um, biological evidence that um, kindness fosters happiness. Let's look into that for a second. So there's more studies of the brain that show a connection between kindness and happiness. Uh, the reward systems in our brain that we talked about before show similar activity when we win money and when the same money goes to a charity of our choice. Um, when our romantic partners are receiving electric shocks and we comfort them by holding their arm. Sorry, I look at that and I think to myself, who was the scientist who decided, okay, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to get couples and we're going to shock one of them. Um, anyway, I'll complete that thought. So uh, when our romantic partners are receiving electric shocks and we comfort them by holding their arm, the brain's reward circuitry also activates. So in short, when we give, our brain looks like they're gaining something. Isn't that cool? And the pleasure we feel will make us more likely to give in the future. Um, I'm going to take a chance that I'm not going to retread this again a bit later on because there was an additional video that I'll try and post if I can that um, Lubomirsky talks about here and uh, talks about situations where giving is not, uh, doesn't make people happier. And one of the main things she identified that I found particularly insightful was that it comes down to a person's personal agency. And in other words, did they have a choice in the kindness that they were demonstrating? If they didn't, if they felt like they had to do it, it didn't create a benefit for them. And I think that can be said for sometimes in the, the community groups we're involved in. Look, I've seen it involved in, in places like churches and things like that as well, where a person feels they have to help. And then for all the good things that they're doing, they're feeling drained and burnt out because it doesn't feel like a, a conscious choice. And I've known plenty of other people as well, outside of a religious context as well, who see themselves as a good person and believe it's important to be a good person, but without healthy boundaries in place, often end up giving themselves to the point where they say, why, you know, why do I feel so drained and run down? I give and I give and I give and I have nothing left, right? Well, if there's not a choice behind it, if you feel obliged to do it, what these studies start to show us is that that is why you don't feel the overall increase to your happiness as a result, right? Pretty cool. Pretty darn cool. So on to happiness practice number three. We've talked about a couple of these already. So the third one, following uh, Lubomirsky's suggestion to do five kind things that you wouldn't normally do in a single day, um, we're looking at this idea of random acts of kindness. So to maximize the effects, make them all different and take time later to write them down, write down what you did and how you felt. So those five kindnesses don't have to be for the same person and the other person doesn't even have to know about it. So they use an example of like feeding somebody else's parking meter. Uh, if we still had parking meters that you could do that for. Generally, you get those little slips now, right? I'm trying to think where the last time was that I saw a parking meter that you just put coins in and there was a little flag came up. Anyway, tangents. But acts of kindness. 
finding five to do with any any given day, buying a coffee for somebody, uh, whatever it might be. That is a kindness practice, sorry, a happiness practice from this week. So if you do give it a go, let me know what that was like for you or even what stood out to you so far in this discussion. And again, you can email it through to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. On to the next part. And we're talking about skeptics and champions of compassion and kindness because we do want to observe both sides of this. And Dacher Keltner talks about, despite the fact that there's recent scientific evidence for it, um, there are those who are critical of this idea that we have a compassionate nature. Freud, Sigmund Freud, believed that humans only desire sex and destruction. Um, If you ever, by the way, want an eye-opening experience, read up on Sigmund Freud's life, and you'll start to question why we take so much of his stuff so seriously. Fascinating kind of guy. Was that a backhanded compliment enough? I think it was. Um, Machiavelli, you might know of through his book called The Prince. It's also where we get this term Machiavellian. Saw people as being fickle and hypocritical and greedy. Immanuel Kant, who was a significant philosopher, thought that sympathy was a sign of weakness. And uh, Ayn Rand famously spoke out against altruism. So there is something to be said for a voice on the other side of this. In addition, our national and global culture isn't as compassionate as it could be. And this is what I was talking about earlier on. Among industrialized nations, the United States is the only one that punishes prisoners with solitary confinement and has one of the harshest criminal justice systems. In fact, New Zealand, in terms of criminals per capita, um, or persons imprisoned per capita, I think is in the top three. In fact, I think we might be second behind the US, so that's kind of worth checking out as well. And that's a guest appearance by one of the local helicopters, so thanks for joining us today. Um, Studies show that empathy is declining among college students as well. So there is this counter viewpoint. I would look at any of these things and say that regardless of a skeptical view that you could take, if there are genuine health and well-being benefits to these sorts of things, then it's worth pursuing. I also think too that the cynicism is probably a word that I would use more regularly to discuss this. The cynicism around compassion and kindness often comes from a desire to protect ourselves and that we don't want to be taken advantage of or we don't want to be overwhelmed with these feelings of of pain or whatever that we might feel when we look at the challenges of those around us. Um, In fact, I would suggest you check out Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative to hear an incredible talk on that particular topic. Um, But to me, I believe that compassion and kindness are certainly virtuous, certainly things that help us, um, even though there is this detracting view from it. Anyway, interested to hear your thoughts. Now, there are legitimate challenges to this, to compassion and kindness, and our environment is one thing that Dr. Keltner talks about can have a, a big def- a big effect on whether or not we decide to help other people or not. So if we're busy, um, if we've been playing too many violent video games, apparently, that's going to be a contentious one. There has been a lot of stuff backwards and forwards on that. Um, or the sufferer is outside our group. We're less likely to help. Uh, we're also discouraged from lending a hand when it doesn't seem possible or our contribution doesn't seem to matter. So like when lots and lots of people are in need. Um, and there are some studies which I think do come up a little bit later on, but I'll jump ahead to now and just say that when it comes to encouraging people's action, showing somebody 10,000 people suffering is a lot less effective than showing one person. And I mean, I've heard people 
decry that and say how come when you show people so great a need don't doesn't everybody respond i think well look you can rage against that if you like but if you understand that human beings naturally respond to an individual story why don't you just roll with that (laughs) you know tell individual stories of of lives that are in need or people whose um struggle is affecting their world and you will find a more compassionate response from people because it makes it more tangible. It makes us feel like we can do something about it. Now, uh, C. Daryl Cameron did a study into how to increase your compassion bandwidth. And he cites a concerning phenomenon, which he calls the collapse of compassion. How we feel less compassion for larger groups of people than we do for smaller groups or individuals. Oh, here we go. This is what I was uh, alluding to earlier on. So... The reason this happens is that we shut off compassion because we're afraid of feeling terrible and having to make a big financial sacrifice. I mean, look, we we live under a lot of pressure in our modern world as well, right? And there are constant reminders of what those things are. So Cameron has looked at different ways to prevent this from happening. And in studies, for example, we can prevent the collapse of compassion by assuring participants that they're not expected to donate money or by instructing them to fully experience their emotions. This speaks to that idea of emotional intelligence that I was telling you about a little earlier on, that it's okay that in a moment you might not feel great when you see somebody else who is suffering. That's okay. If you weren't feeling bad about that, that would be a bigger problem. That would be what made you a sociopath. So to increase compassion outside the lab, our job, and this is my job, your job listening to this, is to help people accept their compassionate emotions and not feel overwhelmed by them. I think that's really key. How do we help people not feel overwhelmed by them? Showing the little things that we can do um, by making helping easy, by sending a text message to donate a couple of bucks, something like that, uh, that makes a clear impact. Um, That can really assist. Compassion training can also reduce our empathetic distress and our fear of compassion and promote helping. So again, empathetic distress is that feeling where we see somebody suffering, we have an empathetic response, but we don't know what to do about it. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. I really appreciate that because, again, I have seen people who, not knowing how to protect their own health and well-being, overextend. And as a result, they they suffer as a result too. And eventually they can burn out. I've, I've seen that happen in a number of occasions too. So can fighting poverty make you happy? Let's get into the big stuff. This is from Jill Sutty, uh, an article that she wrote. And she cites another guy again, Daniel Karslak the creator of a documentary called Every Three Seconds about five people fighting hunger and poverty. And he, Daniel, shared his insights about helping with Sati. And helping can start small, and it's not necessarily done out of a sense of duty. Instead, people, people simply realize that they've got the opportunity to make a difference. I really like that. I really like that. I've, I've seen, I mean, we see it all the time, right? Comes up on the news or... Other groups we might be involved in, oh, we have to help, we should help. Well, yeah, okay, but what if it's simply a matter of recognizing that we have an opportunity to make a difference? The opportunity is before you and it's your choice to do with it what you will. Helpers need to be aware of what the recipients need rather than imposing their views on what would help. That's quite important as well. So again, if we see somebody struggling in a family and we say, well, they just need to get a better job, that may be true on one level, but equally too, in that moment, it's important that sometimes somebody else provides the context for how we can best help somebody else. We can tend to provide a very blunt approach to what somebody else needs to change their situation. 
and it's not always the most helpful, ironically enough. The great thing is that helping can be incredibly rewarding. And we get to see people transformed from a state of suffering to happiness and gratitude. And so it helps us stay plugged into somebody's situation. And again, this idea of increased social connectedness, we get to share these moments with one another as well. Pretty cool, right? So moving on to the next part, and we're talking about momentous kindness. And at this point, it's time for a drink. Mm-mm. So as I talked about a little bit earlier on, kindness is contagious. So it can spread three degrees in a social network to a third person we don't know at all. Isn't that cool? So seeing other people be kind or generous makes us more kind or generous. So being in a group of people who give to charity, like a department at work or something, makes us more likely to donate. What I like about that is that, again, when we look at the world around us and we say, what can I do? Just doing something and being seen to have given of our time, of our finances, of the material things that we possess. Even if we do a little, maybe be encouraged to know that if other people observe that, they are more likely to do something themselves. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, talked about being wired to be inspired. And I love this thought. He studies elevation. So the warm and uplifting feeling of seeing someone do something good, something kind, courageous, or compassionate. In other words, the feeling we get when those YouTube, those um, Facebook videos come on, you know the ones I'm talking about. And if you don't, that's a real shame. You should look them up. There's plenty. The most common cause of elevation is seeing someone help a person in need. Now, what does it feel like? Okay, we might feel a pleasant tingling in our chest or cry or get goosebumps. These are all things that they talk about here. We feel emotionally moved. We feel surprised and we feel stunned. Um, I've often found that it, it, it's that surprising emotional moment that kind of combines the whole thing to me. You suddenly find yourself caught going, whoa, I'm really invested in this, this story that I'm hearing. Elevation also induces social feelings like the desire to be um, with, to love and to help others. And the desire to be closer to the person doing the good deed. So that's cool, isn't it? Again, by building our social circle, if we're seen to be doing kind things, it draws people to us as well. And we need that connection. We have to have it. Elevation can also reduce cynicism, and I think that's definitely something the world needs, and cause people to, quote-unquote, turn over a new leaf, or at least vow to become a better person. Isn't that cool? Now, this next part leads um, to the research of Philip Zimbardo. I'm going to take another drink, though. And he talks about this idea of what makes a hero. Now... Again, for the sake of framing this discussion, Zimbardo defines heroism as altruism, altruism at great personal risk. And what he's found is that ordinary heroes are ordinary people. Ordinary, that's a word that nobody ever wants to be called. Uh, yeah, heroes are ordinary people. Um, and yet most of us are reluctant heroes. So we stand by when we do nothing. So his whole goal is to understand what makes a hero by studying what he calls the heroic imagination, the other focused way of thinking, the, the way of going from me to we, that could make us more likely to be heroic when the opportunity arises. The bystander effect is the opposite side of this you might have heard of before. So the next part is what he calls the heroic imagination project. And this was, we talked about elevation just before, right? This definitely had an elevated feeling for me when I uh, looked into it. So he first of all looks at what heroism is 
and seeing how it ranges from helping in an emergency or sacrificing for non-family to maybe whistleblowing and defying injustice. And although heroes are often seen as solitary, heroism actually works best when we organize networks of people. So through his research, Zimbardo identified some of the democratic, democratic, demographic characteristics of heroes, which in his study are only about 20% of the population. So first of all, they tend to be city dwellers. They tend to be educated. They tend to be male. And they tend to be black. How do you like that? Surviving a disaster or trauma makes us three times more likely to be a hero. So if we've been through something ourselves, we're more likely to help somebody else. And one third of all heroes are also volunteers. Volunteers. I'm just going to let that sit for a bit. It, it got me thinking about those earlier points about how volunteering leads to our own personal happiness. You see just how all these things are interconnected, the social network that we're building together here. I have been challenged and inspired as I've gone through, and this is only the third week. There's another five to come after this. But how much all of these pro-social activities and this, the significance of caring for one another and um, I don't know, all the good stuff that comes with it. I feel like words would fail to best encapsulate it, but that it, it creates a world that's not only happier for us, but happier for everyone. And isn't that cool? I think in the first week we talked about definitions of happiness. And one of the ideas conveyed was that in the Western world, we tend to see happiness as a personal moment, uh, a personal feeling. Whereas in Eastern traditions, it tends to be more communally driven. And I think the communally driven one is certainly something that we need to remember in the Western world to bring us back into a little more balance. So Zimbardo's heroic imagination project is just trying to turn, figure out how to turn compassion into heroism, because in his eyes, heroism is the antidote to indifference and evil. Heroism is the antidote to indifference and evil. So the next part, again, with Philip Zimbardo in mind here, but also relying on Zenko Franco, Zeno Franco, talks about the banality of heroism. So it's a bit of a contradiction in terms, an oxymoron, if you will. And just looks at how through decades of studying the bad side of human nature, researchers have confirmed the idea of the banality of evil. So ordinary people can become evil in the right or wrong circumstances, right? There's no clear division between good people and bad people. Experiments like the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is quite famous for just um, kind of showing how this can come into play, and also the Milgram studies, show that in a particular environment, environment people adopt the dehumanizing and cruel behavior that's expected of them. But the real threat to heroism is not evil, but indifference. What's that quote about how um, evil triumphs when good people do nothing? I've heard that attributed to five different people, so I won't try and give you the one person who may have originally said it. But the thing is, we tell ourselves that heroes are special. But we're not special, so we can't be heroes. Uh, or that somebody else will step in and help. And Franco and Zimbardo are trying to teach people that anyone can be a hero. Because a hero is just somebody on a quest. They're out to save lives or preserve some noble ideal, such as justice. But it's not about needing a big kind of Justice League moment where you get a superhero outfit or something like that. Uh, they expect to risk their lives or their social standing. 
Now here's the thing. Contrary to popular belief, it's not always a grand gesture in the heat of a moment. Sometimes it's an ongoing um, action. It, it, it can consist simply of passive acceptance. And they use the example of Socrates dying for a cause. So what makes a hero, right? Well, the same situations that bring out evil also tend to bring out heroism. And they use the example of the Holocaust. Heroes have got certain traits of character, like an internal strength and self-assurance. They're willing to stand against the crowd. Often they have a strong sense of morality that prevents them from doing nothing in the face of injustice. And that's what some authors call a moral tickle. <laughs> I love these terms. I wish I could be a part of like inventing them. So to promote heroism in our society, we should stop using the word hero to describe everyone we look up to and reserve it for true cases of heroism. We should cultivate stories of heroism and spread them through media like movies and video games. As individuals, we should be on the alert for opportunities for heroism and avoid talking ourselves out of it by rationalizing why we can't help or fearing the negative consequences. And we're going to finish on this idea. We have to believe that heroism is the right choice and it will be ultimately recognized and celebrated. I hope you found that inspiring. I loved how this week's summary kind of wrapped up to look at how you and I can make a difference in the world around us by looking at compassion and kindness and following it all the way through in those moments where we might not have said something to instead say that, no, this could be our moment. It's a lot of stories that are told of heroes, and this goes from things I've seen in the news as well. Whenever you speak to these people, I want you to think about this. How many times a hero, somebody who has been identified as a hero, has been interviewed and they've said, yeah, you're right, no, I'm a hero. More often than not, they say, look, I was just here, something needed to be done, and I was the person at the time to do it. The cool thing is, you can be that person, and I can be that person. And then we start to move beyond just our own personal happiness, but the well-being of everybody. So, that is us for this week. Week three of the Science of Happiness. Let me know what your thoughts are. Uh, send them through to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. And if you are just finding this on iTunes or SoundCloud or something like that, please do check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis Show, because I will link the articles and videos that have been referenced throughout this as many as I can so that you too can go through if you want any additional reading later on. Thank you for listening and I hope you are around for week four when it comes up in the next little while. Thank <laughs> you.